I'm going to answer a question tonight which comes up quite a lot. Um, and in answering that question, I'll in fact answer quite a few other questions as well. Now, let me just say that as a teacher, I must, before the Lord, teach and speak whatever I truly believe God has shown me, the Bible says. Now, quite equally, you, with me, as with any other teacher, must genuinely and honestly test what I or they say by the word of God. And if it doesn't tie up, you must reject it. But the qualification is this, that if a Bible teacher teaches something that you may think this isn't the standard thing that we've been taught before, if you end up rejecting it, the reason must be because you can genuinely demonstrate that what's been said goes against the Bible and not just because it doesn't tie up with what you've always been taught. Can you see what I mean? that I must teach what I believe the Bible says and you must test it by the Bible but the responsibility of the hearers is that you must only reject it if it goes against the Bible because as the Holy Spirit is moving today he's drawing our attention to the vast subterranean depths of the scriptures that have never, you know, that haven't been taught before or not in our lifetime we've kind of had the tip of the iceberg well, the Holy Spirit is kind of emptying the sea and he's showing us the whole lot and you find things underneath there which you think this isn't standard but nevertheless it's still what God says in his word and the question that I want to answer tonight and I think you'll find that in answering it we go through quite a fascinating area of the teaching of the Bible and the question is this what happens to people who die who have never heard the gospel about Jesus. Alright? Now, before I answer that question from the Bible, let me tell you that the standard evangelical Bible-believing answer is this, that they're lost. And there are other people who say they're saved. <clears throat> now, tonight, I'm going to answer this question from the Bible and you'll find that the answer is neither of them at all. It's something completely different. So the question that we're going to ask, is there a people who die who have never been told about Jesus? Therefore, they have never had the chance to believe in Jesus. What happens to them in regards to the judgment in the last day? Are they saved? Are they lost? Or whatever indeed has God even catered for such people now in fact in answering this question we're going to cover the area that Paul the Apostle explains and deals with in Romans chapter 1 and 2 now there are lots of standard chapters that I could say I could quote them and say these chapters are not understood by Christians but I think Romans 1 and 2 apart from Romans 9 10 and 11 are perhaps the least understood by Christians. Now, Romans 9, 10, 11, Israel and all that, there's a focus coming back on that and people are understanding about Israel and that's great. I'm sure I'll do some teaching about this. But today, Romans 1 and 2. And what we're going to see 
in Romans chapter 1 and 2, and I'm not going to read the whole lot, I'm going to pick out certain verses, is we're going to see what you can call the apologetic of St. Paul. Now then, apologetics is a theological term. It comes from a word apologia, which means a speech for the defence. Now, therefore, part of the work of the evangelist, or the Christian sort of teacher, is to make his apology for being a Christian. I do not mean say sorry. That's not what an apologetic means. It means to demonstrate the reasonableness of what we believe and to demonstrate the unreasonableness of not believing it. That is what apologetics are all about. It's when you take someone from scratch and you justify what you're believing and you demonstrate that it's true in a way that cannot be disputed. Now that is what Christian apologetics are and Paul the Apostle was an apologist and Romans, well the whole epistle of the Romans is Paul's grand apology, his apologia, his speech for the defence, the way he upholds Christianity and demonstrates the truth of it. And particularly in chapters 1 and 2 we're going to see how he deals kind of with this subject and we're also going to be broaching a great deal on the whole question of the existence of God because answering the question what happens to those who die without having heard the gospel absolutely tied up in that is the whole subject of how can we reasonably know that God exists anyway so having said that we're now going to dive into Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the first thing I want to say about it in Romans we have the one book where you have a systematic outline of what Christianity is. It's a systematic theology. It goes through it step by step. The complete argument from start to finish. And one of the things that's interesting is that when Paul writes to the Romans, and he's writing to believers, all right, but he's, he's writing a Christian apology, as it were, that he does not begin with the topic of salvation. He does not begin with Jesus saves. And one of the things we need to understand today is that as we go out and evangelize, it's no use in our society today beginning with Jesus is alive and died to save you. And the reason it's no good starting with that is because most of the people out there do not think in what you might call a God-conscious way. All right. Therefore, to come along and to say Jesus saves is a meaningless concept to them. You know, they don't believe in God as we understand it. They don't believe in sin as we understand it. Therefore, to go and say Jesus saves is, is lunatic. They don't understand it. And interestingly enough, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul begins right at square one. He begins with the very existence of God. And what we're going to see is that Paul teaches, and not just Paul, it's all across the Bible, but we're homing in on Paul is that in actual fact there are certain things that every man, woman and child and by child I mean a child of thinking age all right, every man, woman and child can know certain things simply by using their loaf simply by thinking reasonably simply by being sensible there are certain conclusions regarding the big questions in life that everyone can come to. 
And Paul says that there are certain things, and we're going to see three things that Paul says everyone can know for themselves with absolute certainty, without needing a preacher, without ever laying hands on the Bible, or without ever needing to see a miracle. All right. So what I'm going to outline are three things that everyone can know quite apart from the Bible, quite apart from being evangelized, or quite apart from seeing signs and wonders and things like this. And the first of these things is this. Everyone can know simply by being sensible that God exists. Now then, Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 19 and 20. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now then, remember that what we're doing is we're saying what happens to people who have died and have never been evangelized. And what I'm going to demonstrate to you is that even though these people may not have actually had a Christian evangelist standing in front of them, God has his own way of evangelizing men and preaching the gospel to them directly. And the first stage of the gospel is that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews. Alright. Now then, what Paul's argument here is saying is everyone can know that God exists. And his argument is this. He says that the mere fact that there is a creation means that there is a creator. Now, I want us to understand this argument. It's the very simplest and basic argument of logic that you can have. And it's also the most profound. The whole of our experience is that we live in a universe which operates on the principle of cause and effect. If something happens, things happen because if A happens, B happens as a result. A is the cause and B is the effect. And our whole experience, scientifically and personally, of the universe is cause and effect. Therefore, we know that the universe exists because we know that we exist. Now, therefore, creation is an effect. And what Paul is arguing is that where there is an effect, there must be a cause. You cannot have an effect which hasn't been caused. So therefore, what we're asking is we're saying there is a universe around here, okay? And what we're going to ask is, how is it that that universe got there? How come that there is anything at all? Now, Jean-Paul Sartre, all right, now don't, don't worry about these names, but he was an existentialist. Philosophy, philosopher, and he's a big noise. He's dead now, but he's a big noise. He's a respected man, and his work and thinking is respected. And he said this. He said the basic philosophical question is that there is something there 
rather than that there is nothing there. Now what he's saying is that anyone who's going to start asking big questions and trying to understand life, he said he's got to start at the very sort of bottommost part of the rung. He's got to begin with the fact that something exists rather than that nothing exists. The mere fact that I'm here asking questions means we exist. And that is the number one philosophical problem that you've got to get over. All right. Now, Paul's answer is quite simply this. The universe exists for the simple reason that Almighty God put it there. Now, what I'm going to do is to look at the alternative arguments for how the universe got here and boil it down to showing that the only possible explanation is that God put the universe here. And Immanuel Kant, again a philosopher very well known, long dead, but he said that there were two proofs of God which no one can refute. And I'll look at the second one in a few minutes, but the first one he said, the stars in heaven above me. So what we're going to look at now is the fact that the Bible teaches that the mere fact that there is a creation means that everyone can know that there is a creator. It couldn't have got here on its own. Now, therefore, the universe becomes God's whodunit, all right? And that's one of the reasons the universe is here. Who done it? And God done it. Now, let's dispense with the alternatives, first of all and then see if our contention that God created the universe stands up better than the competition. Now you'll find that in all basic questions, be they philosophical or be they scientific, you know, causes, origins, that in fact the alternatives that you've got are very, very few. Now when we're asking how did the universe get here, once you've said that God created it, there are only two other alternatives that there could possibly be. And no one has ever come up with yet another alternative. Alright, so if you're going to say that God didn't create the universe, you've only got two other alternatives and that's all, and I want to look at them. And what we're going to see now is the way that as man has, you know, got more and more into science and understood more and more about the universe, we're going to see, in fact, how science on every hand, in fact, points towards the Bible account being true. Uh, some people think that science has sort of done the Bible in. Quite the opposite. Science is all the time vindicating the Bible. It's just that science doesn't want to admit it. So let's look at the alternatives. The first one is this. Right, if God didn't create the universe, therefore it must have created itself. Now, this is what many, many people believe. Now, what we're saying is this. We're saying that millions of years ago, nothing turned into something all on its own. If you're going to say that the universe got here without God, that it created itself, you've got to understand that you're saying that millions of years ago, nothing, by which I mean absolutely nothing, turned into something without any help whatsoever. It did it on its own. Now, you tend to get scientists talking about the Big Bang Theory, that millions of years ago there's this primeval atom and it exploded and everything in the universe came from that. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? Except that it totally begs the question. 
Because we're asking, how did that primeval atom get there? Can you see what I'm saying? To believe in the Big Bang Theory that the universe created itself, you've got this incredible kind of step of faith that says that nothing turned into something all on its own. And the interesting thing is that no one has ever, ever been able to account for it. I mean, science cannot even begin to explain how nothing turns into something all on its own. And this is one of the alternatives. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to quote what are called the first and second law of thermodynamics. Now, again, don't be frightened of big names. But the first and second law of thermodynamics now underline all scientific research. All right. And they are proven laws which no scientist would refute. They're proven again and again and again. Now, we're asking, can the universe create itself? And we're now going to look at the first law of thermodynamics, all right? And it's a foundation law in science. And it's called the law of energy conservation. Now, let me read it to you. This law says energy or matter, because remember, matter, solid things, is simply a form of energy. So matter or energy can be converted from one form into another, but can be neither created nor destroyed. Now, try and understand this. Energy, the stuff of which the universe is made, you can change its form, but you cannot create it, nor can you destroy it. There's the basic stuff in the universe, and it remains totally unchanged. All it does is converts from one form into another. Now, Asimov, Isaac, uh, he's, he's, he's sort of my favourite science fiction writer, as well as a great scientist, and he says this, he says, this law is considered the most powerful and most fundamental generalisation about the universe that scientists have ever been able to make. Now, the whole of scientific research has led us to this basic understanding of everything in the universe. That the stuff of which it's made cannot be created and it cannot be destroyed. It can simply convert from one form into another. Now, in the light of that, and it's modern science that has put that law together by observing it working in every possible experiment that you can make. Now, remember, modern man is saying God did not create the universe. Now, one of the alternatives is that the universe created itself, that nothing turned into something all on its own. And yet the most powerful scientific law that undergirds all modern thinking about science tells us that the basic stuff of the universe, energy or matter, cannot be created and cannot be destroyed. So if you like, the, the ultimate theory has totally disproved the idea that the universe got here on its own. Can you see what I'm saying? When the modern atheist stands up and says that the universe happened on its own, then that scientist, with all his scientific know-how, has a law that he himself has discovered, and the law is true, it holds up in every aspect of life. 
he has a law which tells him categorically that it cannot be so. So therefore, we have the alternative that the universe created itself. Modern science has now disproved the possibility of that being the case. It is now totally beyond all credibility to believe scientifically that the universe created itself. Now therefore, there's a second alternative. And this one also is now going out of fashion scientifically. And it's this, it's the belief that the universe is eternal. Now this gets over the problem of nothing turning into something. They say, well now of course nothing can't turn into something. But they then go on to say, but the universe is eternal. It has always existed and it always will exist. And therefore they think this gets over the problem. Now let's now look at the second law of thermodynamics. And it's called the law of energy decay. I'll quote the law, then I'll explain it. Energy continually proceeds to lower levels of utility, from order to disorder, finally reaching a state of complete randomness and unavailability for further work. Now remember, I've said that the first law tells us that matter or energy cannot be created and it cannot be destroyed. It's there, but it can change form. And the second law tells us that anything left to itself will decay. It will grow from order to disorder. In the simplest of terms, leave your car standing outside for 20 years unattended and it will fall to bits. That is the second law of thermodynamics. Now, you can look after the car and you can stop that law working, all right, because then you're protecting it from the second law by what you do. But the point is, the only way that the universe could be saved from this is if a god steps in and stops it happening. And yet these people say that there is no god to clean the car. Therefore, the car is going to rust and fall to bits. Now, what we're observing in the universe is that it's described as a clock that's running down, all right? That the universe is getting more and more disorganized. All the energy that's coming from the sun, one day that energy will have all gone and the sun will have died. And it's gone, it's, it's, it's kind of folded up. And one day, given millions and millions and millions of years, the universe will have died what you call a heat death. Every star will have burned itself out. And all you've got is random energy and a few dead planets kind of floating around. And it'll get to the point where having wound down completely, it can never be wound up because there's no one to wind it up. Therefore, the universe, as we observe it, is like this clock that's running down the second law of thermodynamics. And when the universe has completely run down, it will have, have died what's called a heat death. It will have run down, and there's no way of it winding itself up again. Now then again, I'm talking about an established scientific law. No scientist would argue with what I'm saying. It's a fact. So therefore, the universe is running down, and one day it will die. Now then, for the scientist who tries to say that the universe is eternal, he has this problem. 
we know that one day the universe is going to die therefore it is not infinitely old if the universe is one day going to die it's not eternal and the mere fact we see that it's running down means that it started wound up can you see what I'm saying therefore the second law of thermodynamics prohibits any belief that the universe is eternal it's not eternal and the interesting thing is that astronomy in the last few years has, has now got conclusive proof the timing is way out they go back millions of years ago and the cause is way out because they go back to this primeval atom that exploded but astronomers now I mean it's proven it's accepted that the universe did have a beginning again a scientist who knows his stuff won't confute that and yet as we've seen it couldn't have been a beginning in which nothing turned into something all on its own so we know now that the universe began at a particular point therefore it's not eternal now there's a very famous astronomer called Robert Jastrow and in America he's really big he's you know head of the Institute of Space Studies and stuff like this and a few years ago he wrote an article which was fascinating he's not a Christian he's an agnostic he doesn't claim to believe in God but he wrote an article called have astronomers found God and in it he wrote this he said for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason the story ends like a bad dream he scaled the mountains of ignorance he is about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries now modern science has brought us to this point it's brought us to a sure knowledge that the universe began at a particular time and yet it's brought us as well to know beyond doubt that it could not have begun on its own therefore the alternatives that the universe created itself or that the universe is eternal have now scientifically been disproved the modern science vindicates the teaching of the Bible that Paul quite simply says you can know that there's a creation that there's a creator because you are part of a creator it's God's who done it now I've thrown in all the scientific stuff simply to show you yet another example that the more man knows from science and is honest about the more it shows us that the teaching of the Bible is true but of course one doesn't need an intimate knowledge of science to have come to the conclusion that I've given you when it boils down to it it's so obvious that if a universe exists someone put it there it's so simple that a child can just know it instinctively and this is the argument of the Bible that you can know without needing the Bible without needing a preacher without needing to hear the gospel without ever needing to meet anyone else who believes in God you can know simply by being honest and thinking sensibly that there is a God so let's move on to the second thing in Romans that Paul says that people can know and it's this not just that there is a God because there's 
a universe that exists. But Paul goes on to argue that also men and women can know that that God is a particular kind of God. Indeed can know that that God is holy. If you turn to chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 16. And Paul says this. He's talking about the law here, alright, and I'm going to say a bit about that later. But he says, when Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now then, I'm going to look at that in more detail later on, but just for the time being, what Paul is saying here is he's saying the law was given because God is holy. So the Jews have the law because God gave it to them. But what he's saying is that the Gentiles, who don't have the law, demonstrate by their lives that the law is written on their hearts. Now what he's basically saying is this. I mentioned Immanuel Kant earlier, who said that there were two proofs of God. The first one, he said, was the stars in heaven above me, i.e. that there's a creation. But the second, he said, was the moral law within now, we observe in men and women, across history, across the world, is that you have the absolute universality amongst men of the concept of right and wrong. You cannot find a man, woman or child at any t point in history who does not hold the concept of right and wrong. Now I'm not saying that that means that everyone agrees on what is right or what is wrong. But it doesn't matter what culture you go to, whether you go to modern day New York, or whether you go to Bongo Bongo land that's never heard of New York. The point is that though the, the actual things that are considered right or wrong will vary, I mean things that are considered wrong in one society, another society will say is right. But the point is they all believe in right and wrong. They won't agree on the specifics, but the concept of right and wrong is universal to man and always has been. There has never been a time and there has never been a man who doesn't believe in right and wrong. Now Paul's argument is this, that the existence of the universe shows us clearly that there is a God, a creator. And he then goes on to say that the existence of this moral awareness in all men and women and children shows us quite clearly not only that there is a God who created this universe, but that he is a holy God because he built into his creation a sense of right and wrong. Can you see the argument? Now, let me at this point introduce another aspect of Paul's argument in Romans, and I think you'll find that in a cumulative sense this all begins to hold together. And turn back to chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 18. 
Now, you'll remember that I started with verse 19 about the thing that what is known about God has been made plain to all of them. But I missed out verse 18. Now, verse 18 is the introduction of Paul's argument. The whole thing hinges on this. And he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Now, the good old RSV is wrong. Robert, would you read that in the AV which gets it right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Right, that's it. Now, in my version, it said, who suppress the truth. Now, Robert's version said, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And that's right, the Greek word is katecho, and it means to hold fast. Now, what Paul is saying is that men can clearly understand that they're under the judgment of God for the simple reason that they hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what does he mean? Let me try and explain this. If you reject God and say there is no God, then you are left with a chance universe that evolved. Alright? It created itself. It was purely a matter of chance. A, a big cosmic accident. Merely a happening. Now, therefore, if you've got a universe which just happened there was no reason for it, there's no God behind it, it just happened, it, it's just a chance event. Then if you've got that, the concept of right and wrong is meaningless. Can you see what I'm trying to drive at? If the universe is a big accident, then it's absolute lunacy to say that there's such a thing as right or wrong. Mm. Because in a universe that happened by chance, where on earth does the concept of right or wrong come from? Let's get this clear. If you've got a universe which happened itself or is eternal, that universe is uncreated. No one put it there, it's just kind of there. It's happened and that's all. Now that universe, if it's the truth of the matter, will consist of this. It will consist of atoms, it will consist of time, and it will consist of chance. And that's it. That's all there is in an uncreated universe. Now then, the point is that therefore, to believe in right and wrong is meaningless. It is stupidity. It is lunacy in the extreme to say that the universe is uncreated, and yet there are certain things that are right, and there are certain things that are wrong. Now this applies to a whole host of things. It applies to love. Have you ever really sat down and thought about the dilemma that an atheist is in who believes in love. The idea of an atheist falling in love is absolute lunacy. How can love exist in an uncreated universe? If the universe is merely molecules flowing through space, where on earth do philosophical concepts like right or wrong, meaning or purpose, or love come from? Can you see those very ideas are, are just illogical? They're meaningless in a universe that hasn't been created by God. Now then, the point is that mankind 
even though it's completely illogical to believe in meaning and purpose and love and right and wrong, even though it's stupidity to believe in that in an uncreated universe, the point is that men and women believe it all anyway. So therefore, the point is that even if you've got people who reject the existence of God, every morning they wake up and they live as if God was there because they love. They say that's wrong. They say this is right. They say there's meaning. They say there's purpose. They say there are things to aspire to. And all these beliefs are meaningless unless you're living in a universe that was created by a holy God. So therefore, this thing about holding the truth in unrighteousness means simply this. Men and women want to reject the idea of God. And the reason for that is because if God is there, we have moral accountability. And moral accountability is what sinners don't want. So modern man rejects God. And you get a lot of people who believe in God, but they believe in a God who doesn't exist. Alright? So they too have rejected God. Alright? So they reject God because they don't want to have the moral accountability. And yet, even having rejected God, they still believe in right and wrong, love, goodness, meaning and purpose. Now can you see, if you reject God, you cannot have those things. So what they do is they say, we don't want God to exist, but we want the things that flow from the result of God existing. So they hold the truth that there are such things of love and goodness and meaning, they hold on to those and that is right but they hold that truth in unrighteousness because they reject the existence of God. When in fact the existence of God is the only way you can account for those things, love, meaning and purpose, actually being real. Can you see what I'm getting at? Or conversely, men and women want, they want to believe in love, meaning and purpose. Now, if you believe in those things, you've got to believe in God as well, or you're being illogical, you're not being consistent. So they believe in love, truth, and goodness, etc., 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 right and wrong, and yet they then reject and refuse to believe in the logical conclusion of those things, i.e., a holy God. Now, this is the backbone of Paul's argument. He says that men and women hold the truth in unrighteousness. And what he's saying is, look, come on, make up your minds. What do you want? He says, you want the advantages of God, a universe in which there is love, meaning, purpose, right and wrong, but you don't want God himself. And yet he says, you want the advantages of not having a God, i.e. you're not accountable to him, and yet you're not willing to take that to its logical conclusion and deny love, right and wrong meaning and purpose and this is the whole thing that, that that Paul expresses here that men and women stand condemned because they will not take their beliefs to their logical conclusion if you don't believe in God you cannot believe in love you cannot believe in right and wrong it is absolute lunacy there is nowhere for love or right and wrong to actually come from there's nowhere for it to appear from in a universe unless a holy God stands outside the universe and created it with it built in, i.e. the goodness and the rightness of God himself. 
An example today, we teach evolution in schools and then we punish our children when they behave like animals. Now can you see, you can't have your cake and eat it, you've got to be consistent. The evolutionist believes that we are animals and yet the evolutionist doesn't think we should act like animals. Can you see, he wants it both ways and he stands condemned because he won't take his belief to its logical conclusion. Now then, remember, if the universe is uncreated, if God didn't create the universe, then all you've got is a flow of atoms in time. And the only rule, the only discernible feature about the universe is the law of survival. That's, that's all you're left with. Now listen to something that Hitler said, and I'm quoting Hitler. He said, I don't see why man should not be as cruel as nature. Now the point is that Hitler, when he said that, and when he carried that out, Hitler was acting consistently with the beliefs of 20th century man. Because he was saying the only reality in this life is nature. And when we look at nature, we observe it works on one principle, the survival of the fittest. The weak perish, the strong survive. And Hitler had a vision of a world where everyone who was weak would be destroyed and the strong would survive and last. Now we recoil in horror at what Hitler said and what Hitler did. And yet what Hitler said and did is consistent with atheism. He was closer to the truth there than people are willing to admit. The modern man says there is only nature. So did Hitler. Hitler said, right, then I'm going to act like nature. And yet modern man who believes in nature like Hitler recoils in horror as Hitler simply acted logically based upon his assumptions that all there was in the world was nature. That that was the final reality. And he acted like nature. And yet Hitler himself as every man does, betrayed himself because he loved Eva Braun and he loved dogs. Can you see what I'm saying? Even ultimately Hitler betrayed himself because he couldn't live absolutely consistently with what he believed. But the point is that if you're going to say that nature is all there is, then right and wrong are meaningless concepts and what Hitler did was right. Not morally right, but it fits. It fits in with the way the universe is. And yet the point is that modern man rejects God, rejects the holiness of God, but then stands back in horror when he sees someone do something that's wrong. You see, this is the whole point. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. So the point is this. Whilst rejecting God, men and women continue to affirm their belief in good and evil in meaning and purpose, in love, etc, etc. And in so doing, they condemn themselves for the simple reason that their belief in, in what is right and what is wrong, the, the mere fact that they believe in the concept of rightness and wrongness, demonstrates to them clearly, not only that there is a God who created the universe, but that that God is a particular type of God, i.e. a moral God, i.e. A holy God. 
So that's the second thing that everyone can know. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a course in philosophy. You don't need to see a miracle or hear the gospel. All you need to do is to simply observe life as it is and you'll realize that right and wrong is everywhere. The concept is inescapable. And the reason is because the universe was created by a holy God. And how the point is that they continue to believe in these things, right and wrong, all right, even though they deny the God who has built them into that universe. So number two, the existence of the universality of the concept of right and wrong shows us not only that there is a God, but that he is a holy God. And then there's something else, a third thing that men can know. Again, without a Bible, without a preacher, they can just know it instinctively. And it's this. One, we've said they can know that there is a God because a universe exists. Secondly, they can know that God is holy because that universe is shot through with the idea of right and wrong and meaning and purpose. But the third thing they can know is not just that, but that they are sinners in need of that holy God's forgiveness. Now then, Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to start from reading from verse 1, verses 1 to 3. And Paul says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge who do such things, and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Now then, here's the whole point. Remember, we're talking about people without the Bible who have never heard the Gospel. And the question that we're leading up to answering is where do these people stand in relationship to judgment if they die having never heard the gospel? Now then, I'm saying here that men can know that they're sinners and that they're in need of God's forgiveness. And I'm going to explain how it is they can know that. And also, in answering this, all right, we're going to also answer a question almost as a sideline about the whole nature of the law. Now the point is that the Jews were God's people and they were given Ten Commandments. And they were given Ten Commandments so that God could reveal more clearly his nature to them. Now the great misunderstanding about the law is that the Jews thought, right, we've got the law, we know what God's will is, if we obey this law, Therefore, we will be right with God. As he spills his drink everywhere. But the reason that God gave them the law wasn't so that by obeying it they could be saved. The only reason that God gave the Jews the Ten Commandments was to demonstrate to them that they were sinners. It was to demonstrate to them that they couldn't keep the law. It was to demonstrate to them that if anything was to be done about their sinfulness, it had to be done by God and that nothing could be done about them. So the point of done by them about it. So the point about the law is that it was given purely to reveal sin. God gave the Ten Commandments to the Jews so that 
they could try to abide, realise that it was impossible for them to abide, and then realising that they were sinners because the law judged them so, and then realising that they couldn't obey the law no matter how hard they tried, they will cry out to God for mercy and say, Lord, I can do nothing about my sin problem, have mercy on me, and you do something about my sin problem. That was the whole point about the law. Now then, we may think, well, lucky old Jews. Because the Jews are the ones who got the law, not the Gentiles. But what we're going to see is that the answer to this question about the law answers this question about how men and women can know that they're sinners. Because the point is that there is a law in everyone's heart that they are judged by. Now, I'm going to explain what this means. You see, the thing is that when you're born, God puts a bug on you, alright, and it's a videotape bug. Hang on, just go to verse 14 of Romans 2. I just want to read, just return to these verses I read earlier um, and explain a bit more. Uh, Genesis, uh, Romans 2 and start verse 15. Paul says, When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts now then this is the point there is a law amongst the gentiles as well and it works like this when you're born god puts a bug on you and this bug it doesn't just record what you say it's kind of a video and everything you ever do is is kind of on this this video thing but the point is that every time you make a moral judgment, and one of the things about men and women is they consistently make moral judgments. And by a moral judgment, I mean this. Every time, I mean, let's say we're talking about someone in Bongo Bongo land, all right? Never heard the gospel. This would apply to us, it applies to him. That every time he looks at someone and says they shouldn't have done that, the tape runs. Every time he looks at someone and says, no, you should do that, the tape runs. Every time he's angry with somebody because they've done wrong, the tape runs. Can you see what I'm getting at? Every time you disapprove of somebody, every time you say that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong. Every time you've grumbled about someone because of what they did, you're condemning them that they were wrong. The tape runs. And it runs, and it runs, and it runs, and it runs. Now let's picture now what happens with someone who dies, and eventually they stand before God in the great white throne judgment. And basically what God says to them is this. He said, you're, you're not saved. And the bloke says, no, 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 I'm not. And God says, why not? And he says, well, I didn't even know that you were there. And God says, well, um, you lived in the universe. You are part of my creation. You did know I was here. The bloke thinks, yeah, can't argue about that. So it moved. But Lord, I, I, you know, I didn't know what was, uh, you know, I didn't know you were holy. And he'll say, well, you believed in right and wrong? Uh, uh, yes. Yep. No arguments. You hastily move on to the next point. And then this person declares to the Lord, but I had no way of knowing I was a sinner because no one told me. How could I repent if I didn't know I was a sinner? 
And what the Lord then does is he replays the tape. And what happens is that that tape played every time the person made a moral judgment on somebody else. That was wrong. This was wrong. You were wrong. They were wrong. That videotape trots out that person's Ten Commandments. Can you see what I mean? The Jews were given Ten Commandments to reveal sin. And this Gentile, without the law, Bongo Bongo Land, or even Great Britain, 1986, when he dies, he stands before God, and God plays the tape. And every time he condemns something, and every time he said it should have been like that, the tape replays. And can you see his Ten Commandments trots out? It's not God's standard. The Jews had God's standard in the Ten Commandments. But the point is that this person has revealed to him the moral standards that they considered were the minimum. And when someone else failed to reach their standard, they condemned them. They said that was wrong. And the point is that God will say to them, well, look, you didn't have my commandments because you're a Gentile. You weren't a Jew. So I agree, you couldn't know about my standards. But he says, the point is that do you agree that this tape reveals your moral standards, what you thought was right or wrong? And the person says, yes. And God will say, did you live up to your own moral commandments? And every man and woman will have to say, no. The point is, they condemned others for doing what they believed was wrong. And yet they did that same wrong thing themselves. And it demonstrates to them 100% in exactly the same way that the Jews had the Ten Commandments, they couldn't obey them and they could know that they were sinners. In exactly the same way, a bloke who's never heard the Gospel, every time he condemns someone for doing something wrong, all he's got to do is look at himself and say, but do I do it right? And without fail, every time he'll discover that he can't even live up to his own moral standard, let alone living up to God's moral standards. <coughs> so therefore, everyone can know also before God that they are a sinner and that they can do nothing about their sin problem. But remember, they know also that God is there. They know also that God is holy. They've now discovered that they're sinners and that there's no way they can overcome it. So what they can do is they can cry out to God for mercy. And this is why in Matthew 12, Jesus said, by your words, you'll be condemned. Because when people stand before the, the great white throne who never heard the gospel, the whole point is that Jesus will judge them according to the way they um, according to the moral law that they etched on their own hearts every time they condemn someone and he'll prove to them that they couldn't even keep their own moral law and in that way the total justice and fairness of God is revealed now then having put that lot together I return to the question and the question is this in the light of this what happens then to people who die without having heard the gospel where do they stand in relation to judgment now then remember the three things they can know they can know that God is there they can know that God is holy 
and they can know also that they are sinners unable to break out of their sinfulness because they'll try and they'll realize that all they do is fail and sin again and again and again they won't know anything about God's standards but that's not the point they won't even be able to live up to their own moral standards and therefore it condemns them as sinners just as the law condemned the Jews as sinners in need of God's forgiveness now the point is this when you discover that there's a God and he's holy and you're a sinner what do you do with that information and the answer to this question is simply this if someone in Bongo Bongo land <laughs> or someone in Buckhurst Hill and, and there are people living today who are going to die and they'll have never met a Christian that's sad but that's true but the point is someone who has never heard the gospel no Christians there to witness to them alright they never hear about Jesus but once they realize there's a God once they realize he's holy once they realize that they are sinners in need of his forgiveness is there anything they can do about it and I'll tell you there is because they can cry out to God for mercy mm. and if they do they're saved mm. and they're saved in exactly the same way that you and I are saved they're saved because they have simply realized I can do nothing about my sin problem but God in heaven I don't even know you but will you have mercy on me and will you do something about my sin problem and if they cry out can you see in that way that they're believing on the Lord to save them they don't know anything about Jesus because no one's ever told them but they can still be saved by crying out mercy now then for those astute in the scriptures a problem may have come up and over you know the months and the years really that, that I've sort of chewed all this over and put it together I hit a problem and it seemed insuperable there seemed to be something in the Bible that prohibited what I'm saying now as being right and I thought well I've got to look that square in the face you know because if there's a bit of the Bible that says all this is wrong then all this is wrong now turn with me to Romans 10. Some of you may be aware of the verses I'm going to read. Some Christians by now would have walked out in disgust. They really would. Because they'd be saying, but if someone dies without hearing the gospel, then they cannot be saved because they haven't believed on Jesus. And this is the scripture they quote. Now then, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. This is Romans 10. And I'm going to start reading at verse 14. And at first sight, this looks like a bit of a problem. But uh, verse 13, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? Aha, uh -huh, yes, difficult. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Well, yeah, that makes sense. And how are they to hear without a preacher? Oh my goodness. And how can men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Now, this is, this is hard because Paul is saying, look, in order to believe, they've got to have a preacher preach it to them. And here's me saying they don't need a preacher preach it to them. Oh dear, oh dear, let's keep reading. But they have not all heeded the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. Dear, oh dear, naught out of ten for Beresford in this Bible study. But is it? Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And Paul is saying here, in, you know, regardless of whether or not a Christian preacher has gone to them, he's saying they have heard the gospel. And he then quotes a psalm. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now Paul here is saying everyone has had the gospel preached to them. And he then quotes a psalm about someone whose voice has gone out and someone who has preached to everyone who's ever lived. Well, the psalm is Psalm 19. Let's have a look at it. And let's see why Paul quotes this psalm from the Old Testament. And it's Psalm 19. I'm going to start reading from verse 1. And lo and behold, what do we read? The heavens are telling the glory of God. And the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And what Paul is saying, is everyone has had the gospel preached to them because the universe is preaching the gospel to them. They can know there's a God because there's a universe. They can know that God is holy because they believe in right and wrong. And they can know that they're sinners because they have failed to live consistently with the moral standard that they have bound other people with and condemned them when they failed to meet it. Now then, so, this problem is now solved. Now I want to turn to one or two other bits of the scripture to demonstrate clearly that what I've said, you know, that it's shown in other parts of the scripture. Turn to Luke 18, and I think this is the best. This really is the best one. Luke 18 and verse 9. And Jesus told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And this is the parable Jesus told. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. Now then, the thing to notice is this. Here we have someone. It says nothing whatsoever about believing in Jesus. Now this sinner, this tax collector who cried out God be merciful to me a sinner Jesus said I tell you this man went to his house justified now as Christians we believe in justification by faith and that's what this this means when this man cried out 
for the mercy of God, Jesus says, from that point onwards, it was as if he had never sinned. That is what justification means. He was set right with God. It was as if he had never sinned for the simple reason that he had by faith entered into the death of Jesus and God had forgiven him all his sins. He was one with God because there was no barrier between him and God. And the thing is as well that in the Greek, you've got it him saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. Now in the Greek, that word merciful, it means be propitious. And it means literally in the Greek, Lord, be a propitiation for me. Now we know that Jesus died as the propitiation for our sins. I'm not going to go into propitiation tonight. But the point is that this, this bloke, he's saying, God, I know you're there. I don't need anyone to tell me that. I'm here, the universe is here, and I know you are. And he says, I know you're holy as well. And he says, I know that I'm a sinner because I can't even live consistently with what I believe is right or wrong. And he cries out for God, to God for mercy. And he says, really, I can do nothing about my sins. You do something about my sins for me. And even though this bloke knew nothing about Jesus whatsoever, the point is that Jesus died to take his sins away. And the minute he cried out to God for mercy, he called on the name of the Lord, and therefore he was forgiven, he was saved, and he went away justified. But the important thing to realise there is, can you see, there's no mention whatsoever of believing in Jesus. Because this bloke was pre-Jesus anyway. I mean, perhaps some tax collector in some back alley in Jerusalem who knew nothing about the coming Messiah, perhaps because he was illiterate and no one had ever told him about the Old Testament. But the point is he cried out to God to have mercy on him because he realized that he was a sinner. And on that basis, he was justified. He was born again. Turn now to John 3 and a quick little look at Nicodemus. And I want to try and dig out little things in the Bible that you miss, but they're there. They're little gems that are stuck in, you see, and you can follow them and, and they lead to some marvellous places. I'm just going to read one verse, verse 11. And Jesus says this, and he's talking to Nicodemus. Now what you've got here is you've got Jesus talking to Nicodemus. You've got two people, alright, Jesus and Nicodemus. And verse 11, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Why does he say we? He says, you're not listening to us. He doesn't say, you're not listening to me. He says, you're not listening to us. Who's he talking about? Well, because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are preaching the gospel to Nicodemus. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John 14 or 16, can't remember which one, is to convince the world of sin. That's what the Holy Spirit has come for, for. And the point is the Holy Spirit is preaching the gospel to everyone all the time. This is the thing. And even the bloke in Ongo Bongo land. You see, the point is there might not be a Christian who's got to him yet, but the Holy Spirit is getting to him. And the Spirit is convicting him of sin and working to bring him to the point where he'll cry out to God 
for mercy. And if he does, he'll be saved. He'll enter into the death of Christ by faith in exactly the same way that you and I have. The only difference is he hasn't known the name of Jesus. All he can cry out to is God. Whereas we know the name of Jesus. But the point is that for these people, and this is the marvellous thing, if they do this, if they do cry out to God, Jesus will reveal himself to them, but they won't know who he is. They'll just know that God is there. Mm. And it's amazing. It really is a, There have been stories come back from sort of various missionaries who, who, who get into these bongo bongo land people yeah. but remember I'm not just talking about you know sort of the tribes cut off from society and civilization so called this could be Buckus Till, this could be Chigwell in 1976 yeah. you see and the point is they get to these people they tell them the gospel and these people say ah that's who it is is it and they know the Lord and they're there with the Lord and they're worshipping the Lord and they're living in repentance of their sins. But now they know his name. And, and I heard a truly remarkable thing. This was a few years ago, but Helen Keller, you know that girl who was deaf, uh, blind and deaf and dumb? Yeah. And she had a nurse who for years and years and years and years worked out this communication. And the point is, if you're blind, deaf and dumb, you're cut off from everyone, aren't you? But this nurse, over years and years and years, taught... Helen Keller this language and they communicated with each other and of course the remarkable thing about Helen Keller and why she became so famous was because of the way she overcame this and began to lead a normal life but one of the things that isn't quite so well known is that the nurse who worked with her over all these years was a Christian mm. and after she had got this language I don't know how they did it but once they were in rapport and could communicate this woman preached the gospel and told Helen Keller about Jesus and Helen Keller replied I knew him but I didn't know that was his name you see because the point is that that no human being in the early years of Helen Keller's life could preach the gospel to her because there's no way she could respond alright but the Holy Spirit preached the gospel to her now the point is that Helen Keller deaf, dumb and blind, or our, you know, native in Umbo Bongo land, they have a choice. They may respond, but they may not respond. And what you'll find is most of them, in the same way as if you <coughs> preach the gospel to a crowd of people, most of them won't respond. But those that do cry out to God for mercy are saved. So can you see, it's not a question of that if someone dies without having heard the gospel, it's not a question of they're automatically lost or it's not a question of they're automatically saved it depends on whether they've believed on the Lord to deal with their sin can you see if they've cried out to God for mercy well they're saying Lord deal with my sin and that's exactly what you and I do when we turn to Jesus and even though they don't know his name they've turned, they've believed on Jesus and they're <coughs> saved the same as you and I are and it, it's marvellous now this only applies to people who haven't heard the gospel the minute you hear about as soon as you hear the gospel everything that I've said is now annulled can you see that? we're talking purely about people who have died without 
having heard the gospel. One last scripture. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And you'll begin to see how this is kind of dotted all over the scriptures. The idea is there. This is the last scripture we're going to turn to. 1 Peter 1. And I'm going to read verse 10 and 11. Now, what Peter is talking about here were the prophets of bygone days who gave such detailed information about what was going to happen in the future. Remember, they were in Old Testament times. It was before Jesus had revealed himself. It was before the second person of the Trinity had become incarnated. And he says this, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired about this salvation. They inquired what person or time was indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them when predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So the point is, Peter is looking, he's saying, now look, how is it that these guys were able to prophesy all these things about Jesus when they didn't have the foggiest idea who he was or who he was going to be? And remember, when Isaiah wrote about the suffering servant, he didn't have the foggiest idea who he was talking about. But listen to what Peter says. He said that all these things were indicated by the Spirit of Christ within them. You see, the point was, they knew Jesus, but they didn't know it was Jesus. Can you see, in Hebrews it talks about Moses. And it says that, that Moses was, was for the... Hang on, I'll actually read it. Just, just turn to Hebrews 12, because again... Sorry, Hebrews 11. And again, it's one of these amazing verses that you find. And it's talking about Moses, and I'm just going to read verse 26. Hebrews 11, verse 26. And he says this about Moses. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now here we have Moses. 2,000 years before Jesus was born, here we have Moses deciding to suffer for the Christ. But Jesus hadn't come. Well, that didn't matter, because the Holy Spirit was revealing Jesus to them in the Old Testament the same as he does to us today. And so can you see that though we are given, I mean, we are commanded to preach the gospel, and we must. I am not saying all this to enable us to put our feet up and say it doesn't matter. All right, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. We must preach the gospel. But in so doing, let us be aware of the absolute justice and fairness of God. And knowing that people who die without having heard the gospel, they're going to be judged in exactly the same way that we are. If they cry out to God for mercy, they're going to be saved just the same as we are. They're not going to be condemned just because they didn't hear the, the gospel. And neither are they going to be saved automatically because they didn't hear the gospel. But the point is, we must tell people about Jesus, but let us know that the, that the millions through history who have died without ever having heard about Jesus, they had as much chance as anyone else. They weren't barred from salvation if they realised these things that the Bible says that all of us can realise. And if they cried out to the God, the Creator God, for mercy on their sinfulness then you can be assured that we're going to meet them in heaven and now they have met the person 
who saved them, whereas before they didn't know who he was. But now they fully understand that it was Jesus, whereas at the point of their salvation, they were merely crying out to God and realised that he had done something. So, that answers the question, what about those who die without having heard the gospel?